Many of you are familiar with John Newton, the old hymn writer, a former slave ship captain converted by the grace of God and author of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote dozens and dozens of hymns, and ironically, as beautiful as his hymns are, he was, in his own estimation, a terrible preacher, that he just had no way with words, so to speak, whenever he got up to preach, and yet, at the same time, he writes hymns like this one. Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders, shakes the vast creation round. Oh, how the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine, you who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as thine. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks, prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near, ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. The Bible is on the one hand a book all about redemption. But it's not just a book about redemption. The Bible is a book about redemption and of judgment. And you cannot understand the one apart from the other. We live in a day where we would love to cut the one off and speak of the love of God, but not speak of the wrath of God. And yet the question remains, how is it that we can properly understand the love of God in redeeming if we have no category for the wrath of God in judging? We find ourselves now in a section of Isaiah beginning in chapter 13, going really all the way to about chapter 39, and it's concerned with judgment toward the nations. For those of you who have ever tried to read through Isaiah, this is around the spot that you get a little hung up. You go, what is going on? One nation after another, judgment after judgment. Whoa, that's dark. And what we see is that all of these judgments, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, serve kind of like movie trailers, that they're glimpses trailers, foretastes of the feature that is yet to come at the end of the age. And yet in the midst of it, what we find, and this is a common theme throughout the book of Isaiah, and we've seen it from the very beginning, is that through judgment, or that redemption rather, comes through judgment. Purification through judgment. Salvation through judgment. And so for Isaiah, these two cannot be separated. And so when we land in these chapters, we should focus and not be scared to see the judgment and the wrath of God. But we don't leave it there. Because in the middle of it, we see good news. And I hope that becomes clear this morning. You heard Ryan read all the way through chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you're looking in one of those pew Bibles in front of you, we're going to be on page 689. 689. We're going to look at a number of places in the Bible this morning, so I would encourage you to grab one and have it open in front of you. That'll be the best way for you to follow along with us. 
If you're here and you're a guest, perhaps you're not used to handling a Bible. If you take your Bible and split it right open in the middle, you'll find Isaiah right dead smack in the middle of your Bible. The big numbers that you see there are chapters. The small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in big number 17, and we're going to look at the whole thing, all 14 verses. And as we make our way through, what we're going to see is this big idea. If you're taking notes, this is my entire sermon in one sentence. That when bitter days come, true believers persevere by fixing themselves on God. When bitter days come, and they will, true believers persevere by fixing themselves on God. We're going to see this chapter broken up into three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see two cities. And then in verse 4, all the way through verse 11, we're going to see two Israels. Then finally, in verse 12 to 14, we are going to see two perspectives. Two cities, two Israels, two perspectives. Give you a little summary of where we are. We see at the beginning of verse 1, an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria. It still exists today. It's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the entire world that we know of, the city of Damascus. And Damascus was facing a threat that is Syria is facing a threat from Assyria. They're not the same thing. Assyria is to the north, Syria is to the south. Syria is about to get dominated by Assyria, and now they're looking for alliances. And one of the alliances that they made was with the northern kingdom of Israel. Right after King Solomon, his son split Rehoboam and Jeroboam into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, one king after another, was a wicked king. It says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers did, almost every single one of them. In the southern kingdom, you had a mixture of both faithful and unfaithful kings, and yet God was faithful to the southern kingdom Judah because he was faithful to his covenant to David, to Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had apostatized from the word of God and the promise of God, taking matters into their own hands. And so while... We can see in 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah called those in the north to come back to Jerusalem in the Passover. Come back, honor and serve and worship the one true God. Only a remnant went, and the rest remained, rejected the one true God of Israel, the one who had redeemed them, and looked instead to the world for security and for safety. So Syria looks at Israel and says, you want to join up? says, yeah, we're going to join up. Let's form a coalition. That way we're stronger against the Assyrians. Well, that led to what was called the Syro-Ephraimite Alliance. And as you remember, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, Syria and Ephraim, joining forces, were trying to pressure the southern kingdom of Judah into joining their alliance. And they would do it by military might if they have to. King Ahaz, if he's not going to join us, we're going to go down there, we're going to dominate Jerusalem, we're going to remove Ahaz, and we're going to put a puppet king on the throne whereby we can get what we need and what we want. So all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, God warns Ahaz. He says, I know you see Assyria, and I know you see this alliance. I want you to trust that which you cannot see. You've got to trust me. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for. It is the assurance of things unseen. And that's what God, through Isaiah, is encouraging Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah to keep in mind. Well, that is what's going on here in 17. In fact, if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, just a few pages, you can see the prophecy of what's going to happen. Verse 8, this Syro-Ephraimite alliance in verse 8 is saying, oh, or verse 6 rather, let's go against Judah, let's terrify it, let's conquer it for ourselves, and let's set up the king, son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. But look at what the Lord God said, it shall not stand. He says it's not going to come to pass. 
The head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Razine. In 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Well, what we have in Isaiah 17 is a vision of what's going to happen in those 65 years later. That's what we see in the first three verses. It says in verse 1, Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city. It's going to be a heap of ruins. He says, Syria is going to become just a pile of rubble. And in verse 2, the cities of Aror are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down, and none of them will be afraid. That there will be no, the, the, the vision is that there will be no people remaining. It's going to be so deserted and so abandoned that even feral flocks of sheep can lie down there without any fear whatsoever. It's as if they alone occupy this land. That's the image that's being played out there. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, which is a more literal interpretation, then what you find are two words. You see that word in verse 1, removed. If you have an ESV Bible, it'll say, will cease to be. And it has a second word, deserted, is said, forsaken. I think these are two accurate translations. If you have the ESV, it says, we'll cease to be a city and are deserted. That almost sounds passive. I think the New American Standard Bible captures it perfectly. It will be removed and they will be forsaken. Someone is doing this to them. And that is God. That God's common grace is being withheld. When I say common grace, what do I mean? When something is common... That means that it is true for all men everywhere, accessible to everybody everywhere. And there's a sense in which God's grace is available and applied to everybody everywhere. Not in a saving sense, but in a preservation sense. God's common grace, and we see this primarily through civil government, Romans 13, is through the promotion of general good and virtue among its citizens and the punishing of evil. That is the restraint of sin and the promotion of virtue in the world. But there are times where God will withdraw His common grace. And as an act of judgment, will give nations and peoples over to their own desires and let sin have their natural consequences. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. You see a phrase over and over again. The wrath of God has been revealed, and he gave them over, gave them over, gave them over. The image is God withdrawing this grace that restrains sin and promotes good and just lets them go as far as they want to go without any restraint whatsoever. And that is in and of itself an act of judgment. It's the same thing that we see here in verses 1 and 2. God is withholding His common grace, and He's letting sin have its full effect and consequence, and it brings about destruction. Notice in verse 3, the fortress, it says here, will disappear from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, well, they'll be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. To talk about Syria is to implicate Israel because of the alliance that they had created. And so God can't speak for very long through Isaiah without getting to his own people. It's like some of you, perhaps, when you were growing up, you were running around with a neighborhood kid. Perhaps that, that neighborhood kid tempted you and goaded you into doing something disobedient or rebellious. And then your parents find out about it. And your parents are looking at both of you at the same time, and they look at that neighborhood kid, and they go, oh, you're just rotten to the core. But they don't spend a whole lot of time on that kid, do they? They go, you need to go home, and I'm going to be calling your parents. Then they look at quickly at their own kid. Why? Because that's my kid. That's the same thing that's happening here. Yes, Syria is at fault. Yes, Syria is in rebellion against me. And yes, Syria may actually be the one that instigated it. But Ephraim is my child, and that's the one that I'm going to rebuke. And so from here on, beginning in verse 4 onward, we're not going to see anything else about Syria. To speak of Syria is to implicate Israel. That is Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And now Isaiah is going to turn his attention to them. 
And we see at the end of verse 3, the glory of the children of Israel, or the remnant of Syria, will be like the glory of the children of Israel. That's not a positive term. That's negative, because what's God going to do to the glory of the children of Israel? We'll look at verse 4. In that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. Syria is going to get taken out right along with the northern kingdom of Israel. That's what we saw in Isaiah 7, and now Isaiah is once again prophesying what's going to happen those 65 years later. He's giving a trailer for the judgment that's to come. And in the course of these verses, so we saw two cities, two nations in verses 1 through 3. Now what we're going to see in verses 4 through 11 is two Israels. And we're going to see it in four ways. In verses 4 through 6, we're going to see separation. Verses 7 and 8, we're going to see consecration. In verse 9, we're going to see desolation. And in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see an explanation. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 6, or verse 4 rather, we're going to see separation. The true from the false. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. He says, first of all, Israel, the northern kingdom, they're going to be a skinny man. Fatness, as you see there in verse 4, we tend to think about that perhaps in negative terms. That would have been thought of as an image in a positive way. Fatness indicated prosperity. But here it says you're not going to be prosperous. There will be no prospering whatsoever. You are going to be an emaciated man. You're going to grow lean. But you're not only going to be a skinny man. Verse 5, you're also going to be like a reaped field. See that there? It shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arms harvest the ears. As when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. And only the gleanings will be left right there at the beginning of verse 6. You will be like a skinny man. There will be no prosperity. You will be like a reaped field, and yet only a small amount will be left. And in verse 6, you will be like a barren tree. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten. Two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. An olive tree is a common image referring to the nation of Israel. See that all through the Bible. And what we see here is the same thing that Paul's saying in Romans 9, 6, that not all who are from Israel are Israel. There is going to be a field that is in whom the reaper is going to come, and there's only going to be a handful of gleanings remaining. And those gleanings are going to be like an olive tree that has almost no olives remaining, just one or two or four or five. Not very many. Only a remnant will remain. This language of harvest that we see in verse 5 is the language of judgment. I know many of you, when we think about evangelism, for instance, we think about Jesus' words. Remember what he says? He says, the fields are white and the harvest is plentiful. He is giving this exhortation through the lens of judgment, that God is now using his word to judge and to separate those who belong to him from those who will not. And that word will one day bring final judgment where the estate of every man will be fixed forever. We tend to think about that in terms of there's going to be lots of conversions. Let's go out and let's just bring it in. But it's judgment language. And we can understand that in light of Revelation chapter 14. Keep your finger here at Isaiah 17 and go to the very end of your Bible. We're thinking about this idea of harvest language being the language of judgment. Revelation 14. Beginning in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... Seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head. Who's the son of man with a golden crown on his head? It's Jesus. And a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, the angel who had the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and he threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. That is almost an exact quotation from Isaiah chapter 60. The wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, that is 200 miles. This is the image, the vision that John was given. Go back to Isaiah 17. The language of harvest is the language of judgment. Judgment has come against Syria and judgment has come against Israel. That's what they're talking about here. That the reaper has come. And this judgment is but a trailer, a foretaste, a glimpse of that final judgment in Revelation 14 and following. When it will not just be Syria... And it will not just be Israel, and it won't just be Babylon, and it won't just be Cush, and it won't just be Egypt. It will be the whole world. Judgment is coming. And that's exactly what we see here. And yet, even in the midst of all of this judgment, we see a remnant, a handful of gleanings remaining, two or three berries even four or five in the branches of the tree, a handful are remaining. That when God shakes the nations with his judgment, it becomes very apparent who is real and who is not. Friends, I believe insofar as I'm able, God is good in all he reveals, he's good in all he conceals, But I believe that we are in a time where God, in a Romans 1 sense, is withdrawing his common grace from our nation, and he's allowing sin to have its full effect and to gradually carry itself out. And and part of that judgment is the winnowing of his church. There's all kinds of books out there written about, well, what about the millennials in the church? Why are the millennials leaving the church? Why are so many people leaving the church? Why are these denominations in decline? Why, why are there so many deconversion stories of people who, who once knew, knew Jesus and trusted in Jesus, but now because of various arguments or science or reason or because of ethical incompatibilities? I think the ethics of the Bible are antiquated. They've since now apostatized and rejected Christ. They've rejected God's word. And we see this happening in increasing fashion. And you want to know why? Because it's not socially advantageous to be a Christian anymore. And it's only going to continue to become more so. 50, 60, 70 years ago, you go to church, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, you're a Christian by name, you pass out your business cards, you make a few good connections, that's where you want to be if you want to be thought of well in the community, if you want to have the kind of friends that you want to have, if you want your kids growing up with the right kind of influences, but that is on the wane. Why is it that it seems so many people are leaving the church? It's because nominalism does not survive judgment. The judgment of God reveals who is real and who is not. That's what we see here in Israel. I believe that's what we're seeing in our own day. And it's only going to continue to get legalized, and it's only going to continue to get more and more. There will only be more and more consequences attached to it if you do not fall in line. About a new sexual ethic, about how we understand gender in the family, even on where we fall on the issue of abortion. We are in a day where one political party who would claim themselves to be champions of the unborn couldn't even pass a bill protecting babies who were born alive. Our nation 
is under the judgment of God. His common grace in restraining sin and promoting good and virtue is being withheld and sin is being carried out to its natural consequences. And its consequences are always death. The wages of sin is death. I believe that God is doing a work in his church now. As he comes in judgment against our own nation and against other nations around the world, and he is pruning his people. He is reaping his church. So the question becomes... Who will be left on the tree? What gleanings will remain on the ground when all of a sudden following Jesus costs you something? That's what we're going to see beginning in verse 7. What will remain? Who will remain? What will they look like? Verse 7, in that day, Man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look on the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, neither the Asherim or the altars of incense. This is what those few grains and those few grapes will look like. And I want you to notice at the very beginning of verse 7, in that day, it doesn't say the sons of Israel will look to his maker. It says man will look to his maker. That's the Hebrew word Adam, mankind. The whole earth, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It's not just going to be ethnic Israel. It's going to be people from Moab. It's going to be people from Philistia. It's going to be people from all over the world. And it says here that they will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. That word look in Hebrew carries the sense of gazing steadily upon something with great interest. It's to be captivated by it. It's to be fixated upon it. That in all of this reaping and in all of the judgment, what is it that marks out this holy and faithful remnant from everyone else? It's this, that they maintain a steady gaze on their maker. They maintain a fixation on the Holy One of Israel. Everywhere in the Old Testament, when you see this idea, the Holy One of Israel, we see on the one hand, the white hot glory of God being revealed. That's who the Holy One of Israel is. That's what we see all the way back in Isaiah 6. It's the vision that Isaiah receives. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. But it's not just revealing the glory of God. It also reveals the grace of God. Because God in His holiness is not just a God that makes covenant. God in His grace is a God who keeps covenant. Not because of how great His people are, but because of His own faithfulness to His name. To the glory of His name among the nations. So He is a covenant making God, and he is a covenant-keeping God. And so their eyes are fixed on the holy God who has redeemed them and revealed himself to them. Brothers and sisters, this has always been the case with Christ's church. This was true of that faithful remnant, Christ's church, the true Israel, all the way in Isaiah 17, 7th century B.C. It was true in the 1st century as we see in the New Testament, and it's true in 21st century America as well as everywhere else in the world. That when judgment comes, when bitter days come, the faithful look to his maker, look to the Holy One of Israel, that they, according to the author of Hebrews, lay aside every weight. They lay aside the sin which clings so closely and that we run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter 
of our faith. The idea is if you're running a race and Jesus, where he's at and the glory and the joy that he has with the Father, if that's our goal, then we take our eyes off of that finish line, we're going to get lost. The same thing is true here. The faithful fix their eyes on Jesus. But they also do another thing in verse 8. Here we see they will look. See that twice. They will look to his maker. They will look on the Holy One of Israel. But in verse 8, look at this. Use the exact same Hebrew word, only in a negative sense. They will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and they will not look on what his own fingers have made. The faithful looks to his maker, not to what his finger has made. See the play on words? Here we have a renunciation of self-reliance, which is really at the heart of every man-made religion. It's a renunciation of self-reliance. True faith always has two components. Looking to God, looking away from the work of our hands. Faith and repentance. And they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without Another. It's like two conjoined twins. Faith and repentance. Looking to God and looking away from the work of our hands. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He receives word about how the gospel is at work in their church. And he says that we are so encouraged by how you've turned to God from idols to serve the living God. And await for his son from heaven, whom he's raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Repentance is us going one way, stopping dead in our tracks, turning the opposite direction, and going the right way. And we turn and we go the right way because of faith in the promises of God revealed in Christ, in whom all of God's promises find their yes and amen. To turn to Christ is to turn away from sin. To turn to imputed righteousness is to turn away from self-righteousness. To turn to adoption is to turn away from slavery. This is the ongoing posture of the Christian life, and it's the means whereby you come into the Christian life. To turn away from one is to turn to the other. You cannot turn to one without turning away from the other. They are conjoined twins. They go hand in hand. And that's what we see exactly here in verses 7 and 8. What is true of these few specks of gleaning left on the ground? What is true of these handful of berries left on the tree? That they turn away from self-reliance and self-wisdom and they look to the Holy One of Israel. This is what true faith looks like. And for all of those who do not walk in true faith in the Holy One of Israel, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, we see in verse 9, desolation. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. See that word, if you have an ESV, deserted, deserted, desolation. Those are all different Hebrew words. I don't know why ESV did it the same word twice, deserted. This is one of those places, again, where if you have a New American Standard Version, it captures it a little bit more accurately. Forsaking, abandoning, desolating. That's the senses. That those who will not fix their gaze on the Holy One of Israel, but rather will look on what their own fingers have made, that is idolatry, they will be forsaken, they will be abandoned, and they will be stripped bare. This is what God says of all who are in Israel who are not of Israel. That is all of those who do not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should also take note that these, this descriptive language of forsaking, abandoning, and of desolation is also the language that is revealed, the realities that are revealed at Golgotha. We are not forsaken, abandoned, and desolate because Jesus Christ was forsaken, 
abandoned and stripped bare in our place. Those of us who are not part of the true Israel because of our rebellion against God, that we were far off and the promises were not ours. We were, as the Apostle Paul says, enemies of God, have now been brought near. We've gone from being slaves to sons, from enemies to friends, because the true Israel was forsaken, abandoned, and stripped bare in the place of those who were not true Israel. He was judged in our place, in the place of every single sinner, of every man, verse 7, of every Adam, of every tribe and every tongue and every nation over the whole world, of anyone, man or woman or child, who would turn from trusting in what their own fingers have made and trust instead in their maker, of all those who will trust in Christ. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, verse 9 is a trailer of what awaits you in the last day if you will not take Christ. But if you would consider for just a moment this notion that Christ Jesus has come to rescue us from the wrath to come, then I would implore you to throw yourself completely upon Christ in full faith that he has, in fact, on the cross, been forsaken for you, been abandoned for you, and has been stripped bare for you if you would trust in him. He takes your judgment. You get his righteousness and his inheritance. If you turn away, from the things which you have made, and you turn to your maker. Oh, friend, what is keeping you? What works of your hands have proven so reliable, have proven themselves so profitable that would keep you from trusting in Christ today? Christ won't fail you, and he will never let you go. He will never abandon you. He will be your salvation and he will be your refuge. That is what Israel failed to believe. And that gets to the heart of the problem in the explanation in verses 10 and 11. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Why does he say? Why this forsaken? Why this abandonment? Why this desolation? Because they forgot God, the God of their salvation. And they've not remembered the rock of their refuge. To act in unbelief is to forget God. Psalm 106. Keep your finger here at Psalm 17. I want you to go to your left to Psalm 106, and I want you to see something. That what we see in Isaiah 17 has been true of Israel for all of its history. Psalm 106 covers the sweep of redemptive history in the nation of Israel. And after God had rescued them from Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, look in verse 7, what eventually happened. They did not consider his wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love. You go further on in the psalm, Moses has been called by God up to the mountain. Now Israel is left with only Aaron to lead. Aaron is a weak leader, misleads them. What do they end up doing? They make a golden calf in his absence. Why do they end up exchanging the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass? Verse 20, you see that there, verse 21? They forgot God, their Savior. They forgot God. That in all of this forgetfulness, that is why the psalmist at the beginning of Psalm 106 prays and cries out, verse 4, remember me because I have forgotten you. And we see the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises at the end of the psalm. For their sake, when he heard their cry, do you see that verse 45? He remembered. Not their righteousness, not their obedience. His covenant. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's the one that makes covenant and He is the one that keeps covenant. That even when we are faithless, He is faithful. 
To act in unbelief is to forget God. This is what we see in the prophet Jeremiah. He attributes all of their immorality, he attributes all of their unbelief to the fact that they had forgotten God. The prophet Hosea looks at the nation, he says, speaking on behalf of God, I will punish Israel for the feast days of the Baals for their idolatry. When she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. They forgot me, declares the Lord. To act in unbelief is to forget God. Gospel forgetfulness is still an issue that plagues the church today, and it is something that we need to bring to mind. Turn to your right to 2 Peter chapter 1, almost to the end of your Bible, right after the book of Hebrews, before the book of Revelation, 2 Peter chapter 1. You heard me pray through this in my pastoral prayer, verses 5 through 7. Peter lists all of these various qualities that are true of the Christian life, and they are produced, the fruit, because of the root of the power of the gospel in verses 3 through 5, or 3 through 4, rather. Because of what God has done for us, verses 3 and 4, therefore these things should be true in our life because they make us effective and they make us fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. But look at what he says in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever does not look godly in these ways, why is that? Because they've grown nearsighted, that is, they have focused all of their life, their myopic, on only what they can see and not that which is far off. That is the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, consummated at his coming. And secondly, it is because they have forgotten. What they forget? They forgot that they were cleansed from their former sins. They forgot the gospel and turned once again to the works of their own hands, to the things that their own hands make, to their own self-righteousness, to their own self-reliance, and away from their maker. Therefore, verse 12, look at what Peter says, I intend always to remind you. Here's Peter. He's about to have his life poured out like a drink offering. He is about to die. He's coming to the end of your life when all of your purpose in life is becoming crystal clear. I've only got a few days left and I'm going to devote my remaining breaths and my remaining days to this one thing. What is it? Verse 12, to reminding you of something. To remind you of these qualities, what qualities? The qualities of godliness in verses 5 through 7 that are exhibited by those who are rooted in the gospel and who have their gaze fixed on Christ. I intend sometimes to remind you, always to remind you. Why does he say always? Because we always forget. Martin Luther's church says, why do you, why do you keep preaching the gospel? He goes, because we forget the gospel every day. It's what we do. So why do we come in and sing the songs that we do and pray the prayers that we do and preach the way that we do when we gather as a church? Why are we going to come and take the Lord's Supper at the end? Because we forget and we need to remember. Because if we persist in our forgetfulness, judgment awaits. True Israel, the church of God, the faithful remnant, are those who may forget for a time, but quickly return their gaze to Christ. This is why we don't neglect to gather. So I wonder, have you ever been forgotten? Maybe your parents left you in a grocery store. Maybe a friend left you at a, at a party or something. I don't know. Remember how that felt when the people that were supposed to care for you and love you forgot you? Even those experiences can't quite help us understand God's concern for being forgotten. God's preeminent concern is for his own glory, and the greatest insult we can heap upon this all-glorious God is to forget him. It is a heinous crime of cosmic scope because if there is anybody in the whole universe that deserves to be remembered and never forgotten is God. The faithful remnant look to him, the unfaithful give him no consideration. Which is why when you turn back to Isaiah 17, hopefully you kept your finger there, in verses 10 and 11,
We see, therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow. All of that language, see that? Active language of what they're doing. You plant, you sow, you make them grow. All of that's referring back to the work of their own fingers up in verse 8. Their idolatry, their self-reliance, their self-worship says, it appears for a moment to appear fruitful, like it's all working out for you. But this is the folly of idolatry. In verse 11, yet the harvest will flee away. And in a day of grief and incurable pain. You make them grow, you make them blossom, yet they will turn to weeds. They're going to turn against you. And the end of verse 11, the most painful things in human experience will pale in comparison to the blistering judgment of God. Why does God use language like this? Language like elsewhere, I'm like a bear who's been robbed of her cubs and I'm going to rip you to pieces. Yeah, God says that. That's in the Bible. Why does God speak that way? It's to shake us out of our apathy. It's to wake us up from our laziness about who he is and of our own myopathy and short-sightedness and looking to that day in which Christ is coming and judgment is coming with him. On what side of the sickle will we fall is the question. And God uses language like this in His grace to make us get downwind of ourselves to ask, where am I? Have I forgotten God or is my gaze fixed on Him? Well, in the end, we see in verses 12 through 14, two perspectives. We've seen two cities, two nations rather. We've seen two Israels, true Israel, false Israel. And now we see finally two perspectives. In verse 12, we see our perspective. Oh, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. This is the judgment of Assyria coming on Israel. It is a type, it is a trailer of the judgment that's to come, and it's like the thundering of the sea, the roar of the nations, and they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. It's a natural disaster. Some of you have seen videos of when floods take over parts of the U.S. or elsewhere in the world, and the floods are ripping through the streets, and nothing can hang on. Nothing can stop it. Trees are being uprooted. Cars are being overturned. People are being carried away. Some of us still have in our minds images from the, from the tsunami uh, years and years ago, and these are the images of, of people being swept away and of children losing grip with their parents and of parents eventually being swept away, of it consuming everything. And it seems like nothing can stop it. It's a force so great that there's nothing that you can do. God uses the same language in Isaiah chapter 8 to talk about Assyria. He says they're going to come into Judah. They're going to come close to Jerusalem like rising floodwaters, and it's going to go all the way up to the neck, and it's going to seem like nothing can stop it. But verse 9, God will stop it. That though the nations roar like the roaring of many waters, He will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Chase like chaff in the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror before morning, there no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. It appears unstoppable, verse 13, but God will rebuke them and they will flee. Notice only by a mere word. In verse 14, see that language, us, us. Because what God is saying to his remnant here is what he has told his faithful remnant through the centuries, that though weeping may last the night, joy comes in the morning. Joy comes through judgment. Judgment is coming. What side of the sickle are you going to be on? And so this is the hope of God's people. Whether it's 7th century B.C. Israel or whether it's 21st century church, God says, I am in control. The flood may rise all the way to your necks, but it will not consume you. They serve my purposes and obey my command. 
And when all other comforts and all other supports are taken away, you will see and you will become fixated on me and I alone will be your salvation and I alone will be your refuge. Realize the discipline of the Lord in stripping things away from us, even perhaps in his judgment, is always meant to lead us back to him. Our hearts are so fickle, aren't they? They want to be saved by things other than the Savior. They want to find refuge in something other than the rock. And God is so kind to strip those things away and to shatter those false refuges so that all we're left with is Jesus. And he is kind to do that. So what does this mean for us? Church, it means that you and I cannot get distracted. It means that our gaze has to be fixed on God and the gospel, and we cannot get distracted and led away by anything else. It seemed that Israel was doing the prudent thing. It was saving itself, a serious coming. Political alliances seem wise, but that which seems prudent and yet goes against God's promises is rebellion that will not stand under judgment. In the 1770s, John Witherspoon became the president of Princeton. You may not know of his name because of his presidency of Princeton, but you may know that he was the only clergy to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was a Scotsman. He had a natural enmity against England, but as the colonies began to fill, he switched the focus of his ministry, which had previously been the proclamation of the gospel and the training of men for ministry. And as you can imagine, as the political and the national ethos of the day, this nation being formed and of independence against England, whom he hated, began to bubble up, oh, so exciting, he went out And he began to preach not Christ, but independence. The entire school became infected with the bug of political independence. And there was not a move of God for 50 years in Princeton. And its spiritual impact on its American context was severely diminished. It is so easy whether it be in election seasons, whether it be in recessions, and whatever it may be, to take our eyes off of God and the gospel and to assume that the mission of the church is something other than the mission of the church. That we do not stick ourselves into places to transform and redeem that God has not ordained for us to transform and redeem those things which would run contrary to God and his gospel and the proclamation of it in the world among the nations. We are to remain faithful. This is the mark of a true remnant, that our gaze is fixed on Christ, that we will follow him even when it's costly, even as judgment falls on our own land, that we will cling to Christ. He will be our salvation. He will be our refuge. And him alone will we proclaim. May that be true of our church. Until the day the Lord takes me or comes back, and should he tarry for generations to come in this church. Oh, I hope that's the case. May we not be like Princeton. Pray with me.